I'm Jack Semlicka, and welcome to this episode of our 2017 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, part two of Lessons Learned Developing a Successful Strip-Till System, is being brought to you by Totally Tubular Manufacturing. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there's another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it listed here as well. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released, and also the opportunity to go back and check out earlier episodes in our podcast series. Thanks again to Totally Tubular Manufacturing for their support of today's program. Totally Tubular planter application products provide precise placement of starter fertilizer below the seedbed to optimize nutrient uptake and effectiveness. Awarded No-Till Farmers Fertilizer Application Product of the Year four years straight, Totally Tubular systems are durable, dependable, and deliver accurate placement of starter fertilizer to complement your fertilizer management strategies. Visit them at totally-tubular.net for more information or call them today at 888-200-3012. And for a limited time, you can receive a 15% discount on full registration to attend the 2017 National Strip Tillage Conference, courtesy of Totally Tubular. Visit www.striptillfarmer.com tubular to take advantage of this special offer available to listeners until June 30th. Well, any farmer will tell you that strip till is as much a science as it is an art. Adopting the practice requires a mix of patience, persistence, and passion. But there are shared challenges and lessons learned that collectively strip tillers can evolve with, adapt to, or overcome. During the 25th annual National Snow Tillage Conference in St. Louis, we assembled a diverse group of strip tillers for a structured, yet at times spontaneous lunch conversation with a focus on talking about the transitional considerations for adopting strip-till. The discussion also included experience-based advice on nutrient management strategies, equipment preferences, and communicating the value of conservation tillage to the public. At the table were Don Branton from Leroy, New York, David Bermall from Baldwin, Iowa, Ricky Krantz from Slinger, Wisconsin, Mike Shooter from Frankton, Indiana, and Aaron Wickstrom from Hillmar, California. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast, we share part two of selected excerpts from our roundtable Strip-Till conversation, touching on transitioning into the practice, early challenges, and initial benefits. talk a little bit uh, about some of the nutrient management strategies you guys are using but be interested in just hearing a little bit about uh, you know kind of how your philosophy and that transition took place when you guys made that move into strip till you know what did that require on your part and and how have you guys kind of seen that evolve then uh, you know from when you started to to where you are today I don't know Aaron maybe you can 
Well, for us, we farm about three different types of beach sand. So nitrogen leaching's a big deal. We do have a shallower um, or pretty high water table. Some places would be 10 feet down. Uh, with the drought, kind of our area, it's now between 40 and 80 feet. So having a dairy nutrient management's been super important. We've invested a lot of technology in the solid separation systems to where now we can um, take 95% of all the solids out of that nutrient stream. And we have about 700 acres that are not um, right around our main dairy facility where uh, we can use our holding ponds, mix it with fresh irrigation water to irrigate. So that was kind of a mitigation measure when we did that. Fertilizer prices were high, corn prices were high. So it's a pretty quick payoff on that kind of system. So for us, uh, typically what we'll do at planting, we'll do an on-seed and a two-by-two. Uh, we'll go with uh, 15 to 20 gallons of UAN32 in the two-by-two. And more than that, we'll leach down. Um, with the drought three years ago, we I put in five central pivots to cover about 650 acres of our 1,000 acres. The remainder <coughs> is either flood irrigated um, and kind of like Ricky, you know, we're feel like we're lucky if we get a parcel that's 40 acres that's that's a big field <laughs> you know most stuff's 5 10 15 18 17 so um not really conducive to pivot irrigation fortunately a few of our farms are big enough without obstructions of uh, surface water canals and roads and power lines so we've experimented with uh on surface drip tape between each row of corn that worked out great uh, we grew 36-ton corn silage on 78 units of nitrogen and with some dry spread manure, just be able to focus that with our uh, water management and our, uh, our moisture sensors going down 48 inches. We're able to time those irrigations to make so those nutrients hit right at the corn stalk, so it's pretty successful. So for us, it's more about spoon feeding when we can. Um, just so we remain in regulatory compliance and obviously for financial you know, reasons to be as thrifty as we can, but maximize production with what we have. David, what, what are you guys, what are you guys doing? Um, well, I said <clears throat> I'm putting dry on with the strip till cart. My dad, like I said, a long time ago, I used to put dry two by two down with the old four row planter in the box. Bulk bags, yes, we handled semi-loads of dry bags, but <coughs> but uh, then to get the planters set up for nitrogen, I put half the nitrogen on with the planters with sulfur, and got a pop-up on the planter, and I side dress the other half, pretty much. Don, I know you're you're pretty meticulous and. Well, nutrient management is a big focus on our part. We put part of the nitrogen. Our, our five-year average on purchased nitrogen per bushel of corn has been 0.73 pounds of actually purchased nitrogen over a five-year period. This 2016 is going to put the apple cart upside down. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, we focus on the cover crops, contribution from that. We'll put, put part of the nitrogen down with a strip tiller when we go through a strip till. 
then we put it down deep. We don't put a stabilizer with it. We put some nitrogen out through the planter. We have a, a separate nitrogen system on there, so we can put some. We do we do our corn and beans now on twin rows, 28 inch rows. Put some of the nitrogen between the rows. Put a stabilizer with it because it's up in the active surface. Uh, we do do run pop up fertilizer. We run a totally tubular system, so we put the pop up fertilizer right in the row. With the twin rows, we did have to increase our application rate of the pop-up fertilizer because pop-up fertilizer typically goes on by the linear foot that you're treating. So we, we've upped that from, we were 30-inch <coughs> rows, we were running five between five and six gallons, and on the twin rows, we're running 10 gallons. So twin rows increased our cost a little bit, but now we, we come back in with a late-season nitrogen and as a side dresser, we, we go through with our rogator with the air, air body on it and we can blow, uh, we use ESN, encapsulated nitrogen. We've been using that for two years now and that's worked out real well for us. We put on a little later season nitrogen. We tried tried mixing it with cover crops a few years back to see how, you know, that, that was our goal with, with the Airmax and ability to get into a later season crop and do, you know, I thought, if we can do cover crops, why can't we, you know, mix nitrogen with it? So let's see what we can do. Well, we did 400 and some acres of our own and a bunch for some other people, and uh, the nitrogen part worked good. The cover crop started off great. We said, man, we got the world by the ass. We're good to go. And as the crop kept, corn crop kept progressing, cover crop was regressing, and. Uh, Light, you know, I, at first I thought it was uh, chemical interaction because we did not change our herbicide program. And we have a fairly aggressive Hale XGT with an atrazine, so you've got some some pretty potent chemicals in there. And we're using annual ryegrass, and I know dual dual and annual ryegrass don't necessarily get along good. So I initially thought <coughs> thought it was a herbicide program. Looked at all our fields. I went around, looked at neighbors that I'd done, and. Later in the fall, went around looking and started to see a pattern on our fields that my my 2020 did not have the correct offset for the enter and exit. So there was about a four foot four foot gap in some areas. And geez, ryegrass is like that. It looks great. I guess chemical didn't bother it there. You get out in the field where on our twin rows, maybe Chad wandered off a little bit when he's going through and, and ran a row down or something, and where there was a little wider row spacing, the ryegrass looked good there. So then I went over to the neighbor, while well, he's about 30 miles away from us and uh, where we had done some, and he had some wide guest rows, like about that wide, and saw the same thing there. Tire tracks and where he had the wide guest rows, cover crop looked good, but when he got out right in the rows, you know, it, it, it was pretty obvious that it was light deprivation, and we did try some again two years ago, and Chad was kind of goddamning me. You know, it didn't work last year. What do you think it's going to work? Well, I said, well, if we don't try it. Well, <coughs> that year, the second time we tried it, where the corn grew shorter, the same variety but different farms and different ground, where the corn was a little shorter, the cover crop was good enough that we did not have to go through after the corn was harvested and interseed anything. But two other fields where the corn was about eight or nine feet tall, all the corn yielded somewhere between 205 and 208 bushels. So all the corn was yielding 
relatively the same same dry bushel, but it was the plant structure was much taller. And you know now I think with the twin rows we're getting you know canopy closure a lot quicker too. So, but uh, it certainly had the appearance you know anywhere that he drove on the corn you know wide spaces wheel tracks headlands cover crop was fine. What but, was there a difference in the row orientation? Instead of. As far as the rows themselves, well, the twin rows. Well, it's north, south, east, west rows. Uh, north, south rows some, should some get more sunlight yeah. into. One, one of them was north, south, and the rest of them were east, west. But there was one east, east, west that was a shorter corn was okay, and the other one was north, south, and that one was okay too. But it was pretty obvious that you know, it, at least us, it appeared that the height of the corn is what really. So we're focusing, you know, nutrient management, and uh, you know that's that's the thing, public perception. You know, that's what the people are looking at, and uh, you know, I'm pretty happy that you know we can produce a bushel of corn <coughs> less than less than three quarters of a pound of nitrogen, and uh, trying to get that lower. You know, obviously trying to get lower, do better, do better with less. But uh, Ricky, what are you seeing? Oh, when we started. The first year we actually just did a single pass. We did it in spring because we got the machine in spring. So we did a nitrogen potash, just starter blend. And then that fall, that's when we started going and looking at all of our soil tests on our fields. And we were going and putting um, at our low testing potash fields and phosphorus fields, we run a high rate we could change our, from our low testing, we could change the fertilizer test in that zone about 20% from what the field actually tested it. And, well, 15 to 20, it all depended, but I mean, we thought that was pretty good because we have dairy mare too, so we have a lot of phosphorus, so there are some fields that don't need any phosphorus that I want to be putting more down just because it's in the blend. <laughs> so, and then we started, then we started side dressing nitrogen because we, we started pulling tissue samples and noticing that um, we were running short of nitrogen at the end of the year. And so we went, now we're putting a third of our nitrogen down in spring because we're by the lake. So we need to fluff the zone up to warm it up. So I can run a, instead of running, most of the people around me are probably 91 day to 94 day corn. And I can do 102 to 103 day corn. It seems like the late <coughs> variety corns do yield better from what I was playing with, depending on the variety, but from, so. And then we do do some no-till corn yet on our mare ground because we don't need to side dress because it has enough the organic the way it gets released in the soil that we didn't notice that we were running short of nitrogen and in the fall but we were running short of potash and phosphorus in the beginning so we put a pop-up on that planter. Mike you, you talked a little bit but well, I guess I think the whole 
area starts out with your salt testing. We've run a Varus tool over about most of our ground. We've got some we need to run over yet, but our salt tests are based off of Varus, Varus zones that, that basically show us, and it, it does a better job for us of showing us salt type areas than it does from what the old salt survey maps or whatever we, whatever we started out with back in the beginning, but, but uh, Work with an agronomist. They pull samples out of every field every year. Odd number of samples one year, even number of samples the next year, and, and then we're both working on the same mapping software, so he can load that information into, and it's a cloud-based system, so he can load that information into the cloud, and, and we can get it, and, and he does recommendations for us. Um, Tom talked about strip to the unit way we've got it now, but corn planter we we've, we've been been making some changes on it. A couple three years ago we went to uh, putting two to three gallon of ten thirty four oh down in the row with with the totally tubular and then we're running about forty five pounds of in out the back with totally tubular and that's going into the closing wheel areas uh, using a shark. Shark tube wells, it's Don's. It's not their curved tine, it, it looks like that, only it's a, it's a wheel that they kind of developed that works better for strip tool because it's, it's a solid wheel with, with shark fins off of it. And so it, it works the soil a little bit, but it still has some some depth control to it over what the curve times are. So kind of what, what Don was recommending to us on that. Um, and then we come in side dress ammonia on early. Uh, some fields will put it all all the rest of it on then. Some fields will will put parts of it on. Uh, some of that kind of depends on the on the corn varieties and working with, with Vax and knowing when that variety might take take up nitrogen better. We've got the uh, 0.4 nitrogen bar that we've built for the Miller sprayer that we can go into six, eight foot tall corn and put another shot of nitrogen on if we on some fields if we want to. And that's really making uh, a difference in those fields I think also got the operating sensors on it where we can let them do the, the controlling if we want to. We, can, we haven't yet built a variable rate map on that. That's a possibility. I guess one thing that one of the reasons I think we went to strip till we were we were no tilling since well for better thirty years now and and you're spreading all that potash and phosphate on top of it. I know this this group in here is different than most of the guys downstairs that are avid no-tillers. They don't want to see anything work. But to me, when we're locking that fertilizer in the ground with a strip-till unit, we're doing a better job of controlling where that where that fertilizer's going to be. And it's, I mean, like I said, we we were years of no-till and. 
wrote a lot of stuff on top of the ground and you always wonder if it's getting in the ground and locked in, but when we're putting it in with a scriptural bar, we know where it's at. That's the reason don't give up on the scriptural conference. <laughs> we, don't, we don't plan to. <laughs> but that's kind of where we're at with our fertility program. Uh, and we've also got hog manure and cattle manure that we're working into it. Probably going to be working some poultry manure of some sort into to the organic side of things when we move that way. Mm -hmm. We'll get back to the conversation shortly, but I want to again recognize and thank our sponsor, Totally Tubular Manufacturing, for supporting this podcast. Totally Tubular planter application products provide precise placement of starter fertilizer below the seedbed to optimize nutrient uptake and effectiveness. Awarded No-Till Farmers Fertilizer Application Product of the Year four years straight, Totally Tubular's systems are durable, dependable, and deliver accurate placement of starter fertilizer to complement your fertilizer management strategies. Visit them at totally-tubular.net for more information or call them today at 888-200-3012. And for a limited time, you can receive a 15% discount on full registration to attend the 2017 National Strip Tillage Conference courtesy of Totally Tubular. Visit striptillfarmer.com tubular to take advantage of this special offer available to listeners until June 30th. Reflecting on the discussion so far, it was encouraging to hear about the ways several strip tillers are successfully managing nutrients, particularly nitrogen for greater efficiency. Don Branton noted that during a five-year stretch, they averaged 0.73 pounds of applied nitrogen per bushel of corn. Utilizing split applications and organic tools, including cover crops, he and other farmers at the table had a shared objective of stretching their fertilizer investment with a willingness to experiment. While it's often trial and error, as Branton noted, you never know until you try, and taking risks is part of an evolving strip-till system. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from the other roundtable participants on the biggest lessons they've learned since making the transition to strip-till. What would you guys, uh, you know, kind of say is, is maybe one of the, the biggest lessons you guys have learned in your strip-till system? You know, and this could be on the nutrient management side, could be on the equipment side, um, you know, could be outside either of those. But I mean, you know, from, from when you guys started, um, you know, there's there's certainly probably some things that, and we've talked about a few of those that you guys have tried, you know, that maybe weren't successful, you know, others that certainly were, but, you know, is, is there kind of a, a lesson that you guys have uh, certainly taken away and then been able to, to kind of implement to maybe improve your system? I'll, I'll let. We, we started out with the blue jets, uh, shanks, and, and uh, mole knives. Uh, when we first put the horseman unit together, we went to the, to the twin culver setup that they have in that unit. 
but I kept kept getting in. I got into two falls that the ground was just heavy enough that those wouldn't work. And ended up going back to a shake and and whole life back again in that system. Um, that was when that twenty-four row bar took a little more horsepower too to, to, to keep it going like needed to be. I mean, that's one piece that we just couldn't. I mean, there was there was days I couldn't run that I should have been running because the ground was moist enough that it wouldn't it would clog it with culverts. And there were staggered culverts they should have cleaned, but they still they just wouldn't. Yeah. I would say you're ever happy with what you're doing now you're you're kind of missing the bullet because <laughs> <laughs> um, we always keep pulling tissue samples and just seeing how our plant how the plant is reacting to our fertilizer program now and we're always tweaking something it seems like and throwing something into the mix um, I think putting a cover crop being able to put a cover crop with your with your strip till bar and fall would be a very important thing it's just I just don't know if I can afford the rig to be able to put that third product on right now with where commodities are and then finding which product to use I guess because zero ride for me is my arch enemy because we have certified wheat and you can't have any rye seed in and we sell a lot of rye because we had two sorts of different <coughs> one for rye and one for wheat so zero rye is not an option for us but we're seeing our cover crops for standing crops and getting that out of the way and getting it going better and then strip tilling into it. You, you're going to tear some of it out when you're strip tilling, I give you that, but there's fields that you can't hardly see the strips in anymore, too. And how are you seeding it before? We've got a miller, through the miller nitro with 120 foot cedar on that we built. <laughs> That's, and we've got one fellow that's even taking that cedar and putting urea down with it in the summertime, late. Which you could get in later with that thing and you could anything else. It's got a drop hose in every row. And, and he asked me if it would work and I said, we haven't put it through a chat and I don't know what kind of rates you're going to be able to run, but he's been able to do it you know, two years in a row now. So. David, what are, what are you? <clears throat> well, I don't know. I, I don't have things quite right yet. I guess I'm not quite happy with my yields yet. And, and I've learned a lot here about the fertilizer. I've been messing, trying to mess with the fertilizer and I still think I need to tinker with it and get it. Get it working right if it's the nitrogen or what, but so it's just yeah, I don't know. Just need to keep 
playing with it, I guess. I don't know. I've been side dressing the last few years. I don't know if I should put it all down at once or not. But, so. mm -hmm. Well, the nice thing with side dressing is you can you can analyze your crop in season and make adjustments from there, which which we do now. You know, several years ago, <coughs> probably four years ago, maybe five years ago, we didn't. We put all the nutrition on that we figured that crop would need to finish out. And that <clears throat> the year when we first went back to some drop tubing, exceptionally wet spring, and through Cornell they have an adapt end program that they're trying to fine tune nitrogen management. So they were doing some studies on our farm, working with it on there, and uh, the results came back. They said, you need 120 pounds on this field, this field, and this field, and 80 pounds on this one. And I said, there's no way. <laughs> no way. So my crop consultant and I, we went out and looked at it. And you know, each field, okay, we know this one obviously needs some. This one needs some. This here, you know, it doesn't show any signs of nitrogen stress right now. So, so I said, 60 pounds. We're gonna put 60 pounds where they say we need nitrogen, and that's it. I ain't putting any more because I got enough on. And we had we we do yield projections for each field in the spring when we're planting, so we got idea where we're gonna be at. And uh, I said, man, this is gonna throw my nit nitrogen per bushel way out of whack putting another 60 pounds on these fields. And and uh, I said we're gonna leave check strips because I like to know. So we left some check strips, and <coughs> when we harvested the corn, where we put 60 pounds on versus with check strip that we didn't, we picked up, it was 40 bushel of dry corn on one farm and 41 on another. And I said, man, I'm glad we did that, because that made us money. <laughs> Hindsight, I said, you know, where we didn't put it on, I wish we would have done a pass or so, just to see, but we didn't. But in the end, when we got our yields all calculated, our yield yields for each field all came within expectations of what we anticipated in the spring, where they would come in. They were all within 10, 10 bushel or so, roughly, of, of what we had anticipated. So I said, you know, overall, I feel pretty good. And then when I calculated out our pounds of nitrogen per bushel, we were still under 8 tenths of a pound of nitrogen per bushel. So I said, hmm. I felt better, but uh, you know the, the advancement in these strip till machines. You know, in 2004 when we went with the Unverfirst, you know they were probably the biggest, the biggest leader in that right at that time. And uh, since we've since we've upgraded to a to a Cross Gladiator, and there's multiple strip till machines out there now. But what I've always said in the beginning is. Once somebody's invented the wheel, somebody else is going to make it roll a little smoother. And, you know, same thing with this equipment. You know, somebody's got to build the guinea pig, and then somebody's going to make improvements on it. And, you know, that's what we saw with the, the Krauss Gladiator. They moved the, the closing containment discs up around the shank more to catch the soil. That was the limiting factor with the underfirst that we saw, that it was speed sensitive. Everybody says, how fast can you go? I said... How fast is the field going to let you go? You mean the stones? No, stones aren't everything. We got stones in our area. Stones are one thing, but you watch the soil. The heavier soil, it would blow it out, blow <coughs> the discs, 
couldn't pull it back in, you'd have a trench. So I said, when you get in those situations, just slow down. You know, you get on some of this better, more loamier soil, yeah, you can bump it up to five, five and a half miles an hour, and the soil just kind of flows around things. But now with a, with a gladiator, with the closing closing disc moved up a little closer, yeah, you can bump your speed up a little bit because they catch it and pull it back in. But, uh, you know, the nutrient management, I think that, that certainly, I've said it, said it before, I'll say it again, that is certainly going to be front, front and center. And as was said at some of the meetings earlier, that... If we don't change our ways, Uncle Sam's going to come in and change them for us. So we need to lead the way to make things as better, much better as we can. That uh, you know, you lead, follow, or get out of the way. And, uh, we need to be more open with the public. We need, you know, yeah, they don't seem to have much interest until we do something wrong. You know, they see some of the things we're doing, and I go, "Well, what are you doing out there now?" You know, casual conversations, but. Uh, you know, when I have non-farm neighbors comment on how our crops look compared to somebody else's or things we do, that, that really ma makes me feel good. You know, whether it's good or bad, that somebody's watching what we're doing. So it's, a, it's, it's important, going to be more and more important if we can involve, involve the public any way we can and keep them informed of what we're doing. That, uh, you know, we're, we're trying to produce food in the safest, safest way. I mean, I eat it. Expect them to eat it. Expect my kids to eat it. My grandkids. I got three grandkids now. I'm, I'm planning on leaving the farm to the future. I feel when, you know, when I started, I come from the fertilizer business after high school, and looked like fertilizer was a way to drive crop production. And uh, some of the stuff we did, you know, they started banding, <coughs> banding nitrogen or banding fertilizer, you know, concentrated bands. That's the way to go, but. Uh, more fertilizer and I've, you know, since I've been farming, I started farming again back in 79 on my own and uh, some of the farms we picked up, you know, so pull soil tests and soil test levels look kind of pathetic, but we pulled some of the best yields off those farms with lesser inputs. The, the, the what was it? The soil quality. One of the farms, the guy grew a lot of hay. It was a lot of intense hay and uh, just the soil health was better, and the crop responded. But uh, I know I get off track of that. But, uh, <laughs> but right. I, I, I want to, I want to leave it better than I took it over, and I feel like. <coughs> What's the organic matter then for that 0.8 of nitrogen? We are anywhere from 1.4 to some of some of what we got is close to two. But uh, you know that that was an elusive thing for us because. Some of the first ground that we started really doing reduced till, you know, hadn't been mobile or plow for a number of years. We did not focus, you know, when we went to, to zone till and then strip till and that, we were not focusing enough on cover crops. And I keep looking at the soil test results and, and I hear people talk about increasing organic matter like these phenomenal numbers, like how do you do it? And then I talk to, you know, college professors and you know, institute people, and they say, well, you can build organic matter 0.01% in so many years or something, but uh, so I'm looking at all soil test results, and it's like, okay, we've been doing this for a number of years. Where's the organic matter? You know, it's just, it's not increasing, and like I say, we weren't focusing on cover crops, you know. We were, well, what are your neighbors' organic matters at? Do you ever ask your crops go up? I, you, I think they're all pretty much right in line. Because by us... From our crop skull, we raised our organic matter by three quarters of a percent compared to 
the other people that he's checking. We had that conversation because yeah. I heard that here too. The only the reasons they're getting it is like I'm not seeing that. Yeah. I'm just it's just and so we pulled it from the, like they said from the fence line to check it. And I mean that's one percent better than what we're having, and we have a lot of dairy manure, which <coughs> normally helps with the organic matter. But the other guys, my crops and Halton's doing has a lot more dairy manure. They're covering all their ground. We're probably doing 25% of our ground with dairy manure. So it's, I don't know, I see it's the same yeah. thing. <laughs> but that, you know, I talk to people, you know, when you look back 50 years ago, particularly in our area, I'm sure it was you know, more widespread than just our area, but every farm had animals. Everybody was milking a few cows. Maybe it was only six or eight, but they took the crop off the ground, they brought the manure back, then they were rotating corn and hay and maybe some small grains. And it was just a, and as the farms got bigger, cows disappeared and uh, they kept, were taking it off and not putting it back. And just, you know, downward spiral on the soil. And we've got- We've, like, we've seen our organic manure go up six tenths for percent in the last eight years average over the entire operation. A big part of that's I mean, cover crops for about that many years. And, but, but the hog manure that we put on just intensifies that mm -hmm. much more. Well, we spread that around and get it on different fields. But I didn't, I didn't really, it, it's been three or four years ago, I asked her agronomist what it had been doing and then I asked me again this past fall and the numbers he sent me and go back to the books and the average over we've gone from about a 2.6 to, to 3.2 in that many years and with the cover crops and things we're going with now it's, it's just going to keep going I think and I, I mean you asked about the neighbors I, I've got a neighbor that ripped bean stuff this fall that same neighbors feel COVID bean stubble three times to plant corn in it. That organic matter is not there. Right. <clears throat> but they just don't seem to understand that. Aaron? Our, our system, as far as equipment, have kept it very simple since we're newer at it. We have a Orthman one tripper, um, three point behind a case row track 370. A 12 row uh, 1725 John Deere planter, full precision planting set up on that. Um, for us, we've seen, I mean, going from very little organic matter and beach sand, I mean, we could dig to China fairly easily. <laughs> you just dig, 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 and it's beach sand. Um, we've seen since we went to strip till right after the corn is harvested, uh, the silage choppers go through right behind that. We no-till drill in our sorghum sedan crop. So I'll grow that for 60 to 65 days, chop that for silage, and uh, within a few hours of the chopper leaving, then we're no-till drilling in our winter uh, wheat, oat, and uh, barley forage mix that grows until um, about uh, early April, mid-April. Then we go in with that chop and pre-irrigate if we need to. Um, so we've seen our organic matters 
um, just with our accelerated cycle and heat, we've noticed microbes and earthworms have come back a lot faster, so we see a lot quicker gains. And we've also seen our productivity go up with using less inputs. So as far as the macronutrients, we kind of have that dialed in. It's just more kind of tweaking with micronutrients. Um, we have the advantage of having on-demand um, uh, irrigation, whether it's flood or through the pivots or with the drip. So we're not dealing um, with the rain. I mean, we don't deal with funguses or a lot of the insects you guys deal with in the Midwest or East Coast. So as far as that goes, it's a little bit easier to tweak things because we have such a stable growing period. Very, it's sunny every more, day. It's a controllable <laughs> environment. Yeah, it, I mean, it's almost kind of like growing in a greenhouse to some degree. <laughs> the the biggest risk we have is if we don't have our corn in early enough in that those sandy soils and strip till has helped us tremendously as we'll get these spring winds that can sandblast it or the heat at emergence will burn it off as it's coming through the soil. Uh, Sometimes uh, we'll have even as early as mid-May if we get a hot streak you know that sand will get up to about 140 degrees and that just that cooks that leading leaf and you know buggy whips that corn and it's done so thankfully that hasn't happened too often so we we get stuff in earlier uh, we're able to pre-irrigate everything and then uh, traditionally we would have traditional tillage we've had to wait uh, seven to eight days to get back in fine disket plant now three to four days we're in there strip tilling and then right behind uh, planting the next day so that's helped us so for us this is kind of tweaking you know capturing all those data points, uh, we use granular.ag um, to kind of our main uh, ERP system, plug in everything we do every year, you know, make notes of our mistakes or things we want to change or what worked and, you know, kind of drive a continuous improvement cycle through the farming operation like we do in the dairy operation. So, yeah, so. So when your corn gets burned off, it's not like when we get frosted off. If you get frosted off, you know, well, as long as it doesn't No, I just go in and plant. <laughs> There's no coming back from that, huh? Yeah, so for, for us, just with our climate, I mean, we uh, will grow full season, full season, 120-day corn. Typically, with our heat units and GDUs that we get early in the season, that 120-day corn will be chopping for silage about 105 days. So... We do have some forgiveness. And if something burns period. up, we could go to 110-day corn and still be chopping at the same time. So, so our goal has been, you know, just always having a growing crop in in the uh, soil at all times, or at least minimize that that time period between harvest and getting the next crop up and going. So, do you pre-irrigate? Yes. So with our sandy soils, what we'll do is uh, typically, in a typical year, last three years have been really dry, <laughs> no rain, but um, when we harvest our winter forage mid-April, um, it'll already be dry at that point. So with the flood irrigation, uh, we'll have, say, like a 40-acre field to be divided into five separate checks, you know, eight to nine-acre checks, open valves, flooded, sandy soil few days later we're in that holds enough moisture in that early spring after we plant corn we can go uh, 21 to 34 days without irrigating again and once we hit the heat of the summer upper 90s triple digits since every seven to ten days 
we irrigate and then with the pivots and drip then we uh, match that up with our soil moisture probes and um, initiate any irrigations off that so we've gone from flood of about 47 inches of water for full season crop to with drip and with uh, pivots about 26 to 28 inches of water for a mid 30 ton silage crop at about 69 percent moisture at harvest well that makes your neighbors happy that you <laughs> <laughs> yeah all i like for us the sustainability of it and we have a big magnifying glass you know just where we live in big cities nearby us and not very it's the epicenter of you know animal activists and stuff like that so we need to make sure that we're doing everything 100 percent right and to the highest degree 24 7 365 so keep and those, this keep those activists out there <laughs> <laughs> they're always lurking around but, but but it's been a good opportunity um, past couple of years, spent a lot of time kind of the Silicon Valley area and inviting people, tours, you know, people who've never been on a dairy farm or a crop farm before, kind of expose them, yeah. you know, on site. You can talk to people about it, but I found it's much more effective to, bring them, you know, bring have them, them out. Yeah. And, you know, they have kind of these preconceived notions of farmers wastewater and, you know, have, you know, huge tankers out there just blowing pesticides <laughs> on stuff. And once I explain, you know, it is a business, the economics of it, you know, all these inputs cost money. You know, farmers are exactly. some of the thriftiest people. If there's a way they can figure out to shave a tenth of a penny, you know, they will. And once they kind of see that, it, it, some people that I thought, like, oh man, you know, when they arrive on the farm, they leave with the positive outlook on farming and what modern agriculture, you know, looks like today. You know, it's not 50 acres and six cows. You know, that's not going to feed the country or the world, so. Well, thank you to each of the strip tillers for sharing their perspectives and pathways for getting into the practice. And again, we'd like to thank and recognize Totally Tubular Manufacturing for supporting this Strip Till Farmer podcast. And I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series in iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. And you can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting your farm today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free strip-till strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at striptillfarmr and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on May 4th for the next episode in our 2017 podcast series tips for tweaking a twin row strip-till corn system, where Illinois farmer John Obery will detail his journey toward 300 bushel corn with a twin row strip-till system. For each of the farmers who joined us for the roundtable discussion, Totally Tubular Manufacturing and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jack Simlicka. Thanks for listening. <laughs>